Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. Before we get to today's teaching, just wanted to keep you updated on a few things happening in the life of our community. First of all, if you consider yourself to be new to South Bend City Church, we've got an opportunity to meet some people that also feel new, to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we believe, and to meet some of our staff. There are two opportunities. The first is Sunday, March 5th, right after our second gathering, around 1215 at Studebaker 112 here in South Bend. The second option is Monday, March 6th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is a virtual option through Zoom for our long-distance community members and for our local community members that find the digital space more accessible. Whether you want to come to the in-person or the virtual option, we need you to RSVP to know how many people to expect. So go to the link in the show notes below and let us know which one you're coming to. Second, just wanted to remind you that we've got an Ash Wednesday gathering happening this Wednesday at 7 p.m. at Studebaker 112. If you're local, we would love to see you there. And if you're long distance, just know that we will post that gathering as soon as it's available. Finally, just wanted to remind you that if you're excited about what's happening here at South Bend City Church, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your home, and if you want to get involved in more practical ways, you can always give. You can go to southbendcitychurch.com give. It's because of your generosity and the generosity of all those in our community that allow us to do what we do. So thank you. This weekend, we chose to tackle a big topic. We're living at a time where conversations about gender are everywhere. The subjugation of women in the world and in the church is being called out. The harmful power of toxic masculinity is being confronted. And the visibility of transgender and non-binary people is increasing. Alongside of all of this, we're seeing new clashes in matters of public policy. This teaching is an exploration of these conversations and the questions that they raise within a theological frame. Once again, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for trusting us with conversations like these. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Good morning. morning. I'm really thankful that we're together today. Uh, I want to show you a picture. This was the cover of British Vogue magazine this week. We got some fans, huh? Yeah, if you can't see what's going on here, this is Rihanna, uh, along with her partner Asaf Rocky and their first child. It's a very glamorous, beautiful photo shoot there. Uh, this came out just after Rihanna's big performance at the Super Bowl, although the photo was taken apparently a while ago. Apparently in this picture, she's pregnant with their next child, but she didn't even know it at the time, which is kind of fun. So this just came out, and the reason I share it with you is because this image has generated some noise. Uh, Certain corners of the internet, apparently in particular, some men are very concerned about this picture. Uh, You've got Rihanna Rihanna there at the front, uh, ASAP Rocky behind her holding her hand, and ASAP Rocky carrying the child. And and this has sort of set off a a reaction among some men who are concerned that this represents an emasculating vision of men. Hold on, we're going to work all this out. Saying things like, that's the future that, you know, the libs want for us, right? Um, Behind the women following their lead, dealing with the kids. Now, however you feel about that interpretation or that reaction, or however you feel when you see this picture, the reason I, I raise this for you is I actually think it's an interesting little cultural moment that expresses a lot of anxieties that are with us in the world that we're living in today, specifically around gender, And today, we're going to talk about it. There's a lot going on. Um, Gender roles are up for grabs in ways that in more traditional cultures and times, they've been more clearly defined. Uh, Gender identity is a category that's become like far more diversified in the way that we talk about it. And so in previous generations, at least in our culture, you might have thought there's two gender identities, male and female. And now depending on where you show up or what internet space you're in, there might be like 70 gender identities, like lots of different language to describe one's gender experience. Uh, Gender hierarchies are being toppled in a lot of ways in societies like our own and even in churches. There's often been a traditional gender hierarchy and a lot of that's being uh, challenged right now. Bible translations are changing. I don't know if you know this, but many of the most popular common Bible translations in the world made a move in the last 10 or 20 years to take a lot of the language that was male gendered and to replace it with more generic language that refers to men and women or brothers and sisters. Uh, The subjugation of women both in the world and in the church 
is getting named, called out, and challenged at a more uh, prominent way right now. Uh, masculinity is a word that now often comes with an adjective, and the adjective is toxic in the way that we talk about masculinity. Uh, a lot of us work in environments, uh, either professionally or find ourselves in social spaces, where there's what feels like a very new expectation uh, to clarify your pronouns when you're interacting with other people. Uh, we're living at a time of increased visibility for transgender people and gender nonconforming people, people who don't fit some of these binaries. And we're living at a time with very um, heated fights about public policy related to all of this disruption. Now, um, I don't know how you experience this current moment when it comes to gender culturally. I don't know how you're feeling about all of that. From what I can tell, there's kind of two primary experiences of all of this, and a lot of us find ourselves feeling some of both. One experience of this moment when it comes to gender in our culture is that, um, that it's very disruptive and confusing. It can feel a little bit like the ground beneath your feet is shifting and you don't know how to find your footing anymore in conversations around gender. It can feel like categories that have been tried and true for as long as we can remember are suddenly and perhaps inexplicably just being tossed up in the air. That, that can be one of the feelings that people have. I think a lot of people have that feeling right now. Others, I think your primary experience of this moment in culture when it comes to gender is, is less like the ground is shifting beneath you and more like a prison is being dismantled. You see this as a, a sort of necessary, liberating, healing moment where things are being challenged that need to be challenged and a better way forward is being charted. That can be the other experience. And a lot of us find ourselves feeling some of both in all of this. Um, there are questions that come with the moment that we're living in. These are hard questions. Here's just a few. These come from actual conversations I've had with church members on a fairly regular basis. I hear this from a lot of you very frequently right now. Uh, we ask, is gender fixed or fluid? What, what do we even mean by gender and how would we know, right? Uh, are sex and gender the same thing? In other words, it's like physical anatomy, which is what we refer to when we talk about sex, and then gender, which is the sort of inner experience of male or female or something else. Are they the same thing? Uh, people talk to me about what if I don't fit the stereotypical model of my gender, the way that that's been sort of culturally described. Uh, I've heard a lot of people asking, is gender a social construct? Is it something God created? Or is it something else altogether? Uh, how about this? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? What's the content of those categories today? Or what does it mean to not identify with either of those categories or to identify with both of those categories? And this, this one comes up a lot in this community. What are parents supposed to do as they raise little boys and girls? And is that even the right language anymore? I mean, all of those questions are alive in the world at large, and they're very much alive with South and City Church because I find myself having these conversations with so many of you uh, so often. So today, we're going to talk about it. Oh, bless you. <laughs> Before we get into it, I want to offer a few disclaimers. First of all, um, a lot of us who grew up in church came to believe that the sermon is somebody telling you what to think. That's not my primary agenda today. I am going to make the case for some things. I have some convictions that I'm bringing to this, and I'm going to try to persuade you. But I'm more interested in giving you some things to think about as we continue to work this out together. I'm not pretending to have all this nailed down. I'm not pretending to have all the answers. God knows I don't have all the answers to the questions I just shared with you. Um, but just because we don't have answers doesn't mean that we don't have some anchors. doesn't mean that we don't have some fixed points of orientation that I think can help us navigate this moment and pursue new answers to questions that might feel new to us for the first time, right? I also want to own the fact that like, I'm coming to this whole conversation from a particular experience and location, and as much as I can try to learn about other people's experiences, I still live inside my own, right? And like, for me, that means I'm a cisgender man. If that's a, a, a word that's new for you, cisgender, cis just comes from the Latin meaning on the same side of. So to say I'm a cisgender man is just to say that in my own experience of life and my body and my gender, like my experience has been that the sex and gender that were identified at birth for me, that my inner experience of gender lines up on the same side as that, if that makes sense, right? So I'm coming to this from a location, and I just want to like, in case that wasn't obvious to you, I, it's probably obvious to you, but I just want to name that out loud. Um, and the last thing I'm going to say before we get into this is that as we talk through it, we're going to do a lot of work today. And I'm, I'm going to set down several layers of thinking 
So like, hang with me, okay? Like if you hear something early and you're like, oh no, he, he, went, he said that, like at least let me get to the end of it and see where all of this goes and then you can poke holes in it and critique it because that's totally fair game. But I'm just like, don't, don't let yourself get too set off by something early because we're gonna be stacking layers here to kind of build a complex picture that I think can help us navigate the world that we're living in for all of us who, who don't wanna just um, feel lost and un, unmoored and all of this strange stuff that's going on right now that feels unfamiliar to so many. So that's the agenda. You guys up for it? Yeah. Cool. I'm going to pray for us because God knows we need it. And then uh, we'll jump in. Loving God, as we set our minds to complicated questions and challenging experiences, I pray that you would help us keep our intentions set on meeting you in this. That as we explore ancient texts and modern experiences, that something of you would speak to us, guide us. We invite you to lead us in the way of love for ourselves, for our neighbors, for everyone in this whole human family. And I pray these things in Christ's name. We all said, amen. amen. Let's go to what's probably ground zero for uh, these categories or ideas in scripture. The first thing scripture ever says about humanity, you've heard us talk about it many times because it's the foundation of our mantra, everyone an icon. It's this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It goes like this. God said, let us make a human in our image, by our likeness, to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and the cattle and the wild beasts and all the crawling things that crawl upon the earth. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. There you go. Now, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 isn't the first time that human beings have mapped out this male and female thing, but in the story of scripture, that's like the first page, right? That's the first mention that we get that sort of makes sense of human experience through male and female. Now, um, as far as I can tell, a lot of things historically have happened around these categories of male and female. I want to name just three today. First, for a lot of cultures, including our own for most of our history, we have assumed that there's a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between anatomy and gender. That male describes both male anatomy and masculine gender experience, and that female describes both female anatomy and female gender experience. I'm not um, weighing in on these observations right now, I'm just saying that tends to have been how we've sorted this out, right? A second thing that's happened in our sort of working this out, I would argue, is that when it comes to male or masculine experience or manhood, often the version of that that's been held up or affirmed, I would argue has been a fairly immature adolescent or even like really broken way of envisioning those energies showing up in the world. And third, we created a hierarchy between male, masculine, manhood, man, however you want to think about that category, whether it's anatomy or gender or all of the above, we created a hierarchy between that and woman and put woman on the hard side of that hierarchy, right? I want to work through those three observations in reverse. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the experience of women in this breakdown. Um, when Genesis 1 says God created humanity in God's image, male and female, God created them, it's just the most basic observation, the, the most modest assertion, to say that that text is telling us that when God wanted God to be expressed in humanity, God needed both male and female. That's just a really basic observation. When God wanted God's self to be expressed in humanity, God needed both male and female to get the job done. Right? Again, we're not making a leap yet. The leaps come later in the sermon, trust me. <laughs> but so far, this is like as basic as we can get. Uh, I would argue, and here I'm already making, now I'm making a bit of a move, and you're going to have your own opinion about it. But I'm, another way of saying that is perhaps that God needed both um, protecting and nurturing energies in the world. That God needed um, both rugged and tender strength in the world. And I know, I've made a move there. 
But I'm just saying that that's an observation that I think is really justified here. Um, if you want to get all of God, if you, if you want to get in a clear picture of God, if you want the life of God to be in our midst, you're not going to get there if you leave women behind or kick them out. That's just, that just seems like really basic here, right? Now, at Southland City Church, uh, we've always been committed to what's called uh, an egalitarian view here, meaning that we've always believed and acted on the belief that men and women belong at every level of our life together, that men and women should preach and teach and lead and all that stuff, right? And to be honest, um, I think because of that and probably because of my own personal blind spots because I'm a man, like, we've not actually talked about it. We've just tried to do it, but we, we've never like clarified that or explained how we got there. And I've been challenged on this, and I'm thankful for that challenge because I think it's been a bit naive of me to think that it, it wouldn't be helpful to explain that and to just say it really clearly here. And so like, I need to fix that a little bit today um, because it hasn't been something that we've actually articulated comprehensively. Um, again, this is like a blind spot for me, I'll confess. It's an area where I've been a little bit naive. There's a preacher I love, uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber, who says she grew up in, in highly hierarchical churches where men had all the power and the voice and the leadership. And she said one of the ways that that worked out and some of the harm that it caused is essentially if you believe that God is male, then male is God, right? And I've heard her say that. I'm like, oh, that, I mean, that makes sense theoretically. But then on, I'm being honest here. I'm being transparent with you. My next move as I think about that is like, that nobody actually thinks God is actually male, right? I know you're all ahead of me. I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm like, surely God transcends that, right? Like, we get that, right? Like, I've had that thought. And this week, gang, this is my confession. As I'm researching and working on this teaching, I stumble into a staggering article written by a man with a PhD on a website that is frequented by millions of American Christians every month. Very, very, very popular. And by sheer numbers, you would argue mainstream theological Christian source talking about God and gender. And this is a sentence I read in the article on the screen. God's maleness is a reality and not a metaphor. And I know, right? <laughs> that wasn't written 100 years ago or 500 years ago. That's not being said in some dark fringe corner that everybody can recognize should be written off. That comes from a very mainstream website written by somebody who claims to be a credible theologian read by millions of people. Now, I'm not a fan of preaching that makes boogeyman of, of things going on out there. I don't, I, I, I don't think it's good preaching. I don't like that. It's, I, I don't like the idea of like pointing at like bad behavior out there. And I just think that's not great preaching for the most part. But every once in a while, I'm realizing <laughs> if we don't say this, I'm effectively gaslighting you and ignoring a huge part of what's actually happening in the world right now. And of course, one of the reasons it's probably easier for me to do that is because I haven't been subject to the harm that that causes in the same direct ways that women are. Doesn't mean that we don't all suffer because of that, but I haven't been subject to that in the direct ways that women have been. But there it is. Um, when I read that, it broke my heart, and it got me angry. I keep thinking about the everyone and icon in Genesis 1. God wanted to express God's self. God wanted to give God's own life to the world. God wanted to live out God's beauty and power in the world, and to do so, God decided that God needed male and female for that to happen. If you want to get all of God, you're not going to get God if you leave half of that behind. If you pile it with hierarchy and constraint and tell it to shut up and stay on course, like you're just not going to get there. Now, I'm talking about Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and some of you are very uh, bright Bible scholars, and you're thinking, well, yeah, that's great, but what about all that New Testament stuff? Because Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that might feel very egalitarian, very um, honoring of both men and women. But then we have all of these really complicated texts in the New Testament, especially in the letters of a guy named Paul. <laughs> yeah, so if you're reading through your New Testament and you know books like 1 Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians or Galatians, these are letters written by the Apostle Paul to early churches. And in these letters, you often find Paul talking about both in the church and in the home, the ways that things that should be ordered 
along lines of gender, that men and women have different roles and should be prescribed different tasks, right? Well, I was reading more about this uh, specifically in a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood that I highly recommend by Beth Allison Barr. By the way, the podcast notes for this week are going to have a, a resource list for you if you want to follow up. And this is Beth Allison Barr talking about how her students interact with Paul right here on the screen. <laughs> I hate Paul. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from my students, mostly young women, scarred by how Paul has been used against them as they've been told to be silent, as in 1 Corinthians 14, to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5, not to teach or exercise authority over men, as in 1 Timothy chapter 2, to be workers at home, as in Titus chapter 2. They've been taught that God designed women to follow male headship, as in 1 Corinthians 11, focusing on family and home, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, and that occupations other than family should be secondary for women, mostly undertaken out of necessity or after their children have left the house. Well, that's a, a nice summary of some of the challenges that we have as we try to work out male and female in the church and try to do it in a theological way. Now, because we're covering a lot of ground today, not just the question of women's experience in church or in the world, I'm not going to take you into a line-by-line -line analysis of those texts, but I am going to take one step back and offer a larger reflection that you can then pursue in your own study if you want to go further into this. Here I'm working both from uh, Beth Allison Barr's work in The Making of Biblical Womanhood and uh, another uh, work called Jesus Among the, or, sorry, Paul Among the People by Sarah Rudin, a uh, really interesting and some of the work that both of these authors do, that a lot of scholars have done, is they, they set these texts in their original historical context. This is really important. Context always matters if you're going to understand text. Like I, I, if I could like beat one drum about how we read the Bible, it would be this. Context matters. Now, one of the reasons this is hard for us, I think, is um, roughly 500 years ago, a really good thing happened, but it brought with it a bad thing. The good thing that happened 500 years ago is Luther and the Reformation said to Christians, they said, the Bible's for everyone. It's not just for the authorized man on stage to read for himself and then tell you what it says. That's really good. The Bible's for everyone. It's a gift for every person. It's there for you to hear from God, to meet God, to know God. Wonderful, beautiful. That's the good thing that happened 500 years ago. The bad thing that happened is that somewhere along the line with that, we all started thinking that anybody can read this and understand it without help. Have you read that thing? It is a complicated book. We need each other. We need men and women reading it together. We need scholars and lay people reading it together. We need experts on ancient Near Eastern culture helping us read it. We need good teachers. And when you pay attention to good teachers, one of the things they'll do is they'll move toward context. And when you look at the context that surrounds Paul and the letters that he wrote, it does start to look a little different, what he's doing when it comes to women. A couple of moves that I'll make briefly, I'll kind of summarize before we move on to other parts of the New Testament. One move has to do with the difference between Roman, Christian, or, sorry, Roman household codes and the household codes that are given in the New Testament. So household code is kind of like a genre of literature. It's very common in the ancient world. It's writings that instruct a household on how it should be rightly ordered. These are common in Greco-Roman culture, and they're also all over the New Testament. One basic observation when you look at the household codes that were swirling around in the ancient world at the same time that Paul writes his household codes, this might seem like a minor thing. I don't think it is. In most of these Roman household codes, the women aren't even spoken to. There's no, hey, women do this or be this or act this way. It's, it's, it's literally just written to the men and for the men for how they should use their power over the women in their house. Now, again, I don't know if that seems like a minor move or a major move. But in the context of Paul's world, when he speaks directly to women, you may not like what he says to them, <laughs> but it, it is a significant move for him to name and speak directly to the women rather than speaking to the men and speaking through the men to them. So that's, that's one big move that happens here, okay? Uh, another move, though, that's uh, fascinating to me, the more that I understand this, is that if you took seriously Paul's instructions regarding women in the church, which I, I'm not trying to suggest this resolves everything, but... If, if you took seriously Paul's instructions in the first century about women in the church and how they appear and how they show up and what they do when they get together, one of the effects of it would be that a class hierarchy would be demolished. 
so it's hard for us to fully like, get our heads around all the ways that women's behavior and fashion and everything else in the ancient world becomes a, a script for a class hierarchy. And one of the things happening, if you actually took Paul's instructions and you applied them in the church, would be that the markers of that class hierarchy and the power structures that come with that among women would be demolished, and they would be finding themselves um, both behaviorally and symbolically on a more equal footing in the experience of the church's life together. Again, I don't know if that moves you a little bit or a lot, and um, I would encourage you to like, go out there, read the books that we'll put on the reading list. There's much more that can be said about the question of whether uh, the New Testament really is like anti-women or pro-women or what's going on there. But if you read Paul in context, he sounds a lot different than if you read him in a vacuum. And if you read Paul in context, it seems quite clear that he is actively resisting, that he is moving against, that he is pushing against the status quo of the way that women experience community and power in that world. Now, he may not have moved far enough, and maybe we have more work to do, of course, but that doesn't change the fact that when you read Paul in context, you see somebody who is defying some of the conventions of his day, and he defies them in the direction of more equality and empowerment for women. So that's one takeaway. Go read more if you want to learn more about that. But here's the other thing. The New Testament is not just Paul's letters. And it's always interesting to me how in every environment we tend to privilege certain texts and leave others behind. So if you want like a truly New Testament view of women, you've got to take in all the data, right? Not just cherry pick the scriptures that fit the model that you're working on, right? Let me take you to two other critical moments in the New Testament that I think lay a serious groundwork for the idea that what we saw in Genesis 1 kept going that God knew that we needed men and women to get all of God. The first one comes from the epicenter of action in the New Testament. This is the resurrection of Jesus, where after Jesus comes out of the tomb, the first person that he encounters is Mary Magdalene. This is the scene from John chapter 20. Jesus says to Mary, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Um, every time I read this, I think about that dumb scene in the office where Michael Scott finds out that his branch is closing. And he comes out and he says, everyone, I have news for you that corporate thought it was most important for me to hear first. <laughs> because he feels, he feels elevated by that, right? He feels significant because of that. I'm telling you, when the resurrection happened, don't miss this. This is not insignificant. The, the first person to encounter the resurrected Christ, who was then sent to the men to educate them about what had just happened, was Mary Magdalene, a woman. That's significant. That's not just one moment in the Gospels. That is the epicenter of the event that shaped the church and created the world that we are trying to live in today. And the person who was first given access to that experience and then told to go tell the men about it was Mary Magdalene. Don't miss that. This perhaps... This perhaps is why Paul feels empowered to do what he does in Romans chapter 16, which sounds a lot different than the household codes that he offers. In Romans 16, Paul's offering greetings to the people of the church. And we read this in chapter 16, verse 7. He tells the church, greet Andronicus and Junia. Now, Junia is a woman. <laughs> My fellow Jews who've been in prison with me, listen, they are outstanding among the apostles. Junia is outstanding among the apostles. Apostle is an elevated category of leadership in the early church, and Junia is numbered among them here in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, anytime somebody wants to talk to me about, like, well, I hope we have a biblical view of women, I'm like, yes, show me your woman apostles. I would love to hear them preach the resurrection as happened in the New Testament. I'm serious about that. Uh, Whatever is going on in the church and in the story of Jesus, it seems clear to me that it's actually more harmonized with, more aligned with Genesis 1, 26 and 27 than it is a rejection of it. If we want God, we've got to have women and men speaking to us, teaching us, leading us, shaping our future together. Uh, I just don't see any way around it. And the fact that the church has been one of the worst offenders on that front, I think, grieves God and it should grieve us. Now, um, one other textual observation that I think might help you begin to really get your head around what seems to be happening in the Bible's storytelling about human, humanity and human diversity along gender. And it goes back to Genesis 2. I think it's easy to misread Genesis 2. So Genesis 1 is that first creation story where 
God does all the sifting and sorting. The spirit hovers over the, the, the waters and there's sort of chaos and darkness. And then from that chaotic darkness, God sifts and sorts and brings the created world that we see today. Genesis 2 is a sort of another telling of creation. It sort of sits side by side with Genesis 1 and another way of telling the story of how it is that humanity got here, right? Now, anybody know this story in Genesis 2? You might know it like this. God creates Adam, and then Adam tries to find companionship among the animals, but none of them are a good fit for Adam. And so then after realizing that it's not good for Adam to be alone, but it's also not good for Adam to be partnered with any of the animals, God puts Adam to sleep, and then God takes the rib out of Adam's side, and then from that rib becomes a woman, right? Are you familiar with this story? Yeah. Now, the problem with the way that I just told you that story is, one, it's not actually how the text goes. I'm about to blow your mind. Two, um, two... It could imply that woman is somehow derivative of man. Right? I don't think that's, I don't think woman is derivative of man, but it could imply that, right? You could, you could kind of run with that in a really toxic direction, I think. That somehow woman is the, the afterthought, sort of dependent on, derivative of man, right? Well, here's the thing. Adam is not a proper name. Did you know that? I mean, yeah, it becomes a proper name later in the storytelling, but Adam is literally just the word for human in the text. Now, now you're thinking, oh, Jay's doing that new agey progressive thing where he like, you know, revises the Bible. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, just like walk into any credible biblical studies department and ask somebody who knows the Hebrew what's actually going on in the text. And they will agree with a scholar named Robert Alter, who, by the way, is as credible as any Old Testament scholar gets when it comes to the languages. And I take this specifically from his translation of the Old Testament. Alter has it like this because he knows what he's doing. The text goes like this. The Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human. Let me give you a telling of Genesis 2 that I think is very textually faithful. Um, God bent down to the dust, shaped it in the form of human, and breathed spirit into it. And then it decided that human was not good to be alone. And so God set human in conversation with the natural world around human, with the animals, one by one. And while moving through the animals, human did not find a right partner. So God puts human to sleep. And then God doesn't take a rib. Rib, the word for rib there in the Hebrew is a very strange word. It doesn't get used very often. But here's the thing. Anywhere else it's used, it's an architectural term, meaning one side of things. So it could be rendered like this. God took human, put human to sleep split human in two, and one side became man, and one side became woman. Again, I don't know if that seems um, bizarre to you. I'm telling you, that's like a fairly legitimate, fairly well-corroborated reading from scholars who understand the way that this language works. Um, female's not derivative. God, again, God wanted God's life to be lived out in the world. And it was God's idea that there would be man and woman, male and female, and that to have God is to have all of that. And to not have all of that, to not have the voices of men and women, the strength of men and women, the insight of men and women, the presence of men and women, is to not get all of God. One more note before we move on to the next part of this whole consideration. Uh, in Genesis 9, you've heard me preach this when I preach everyone an icon. Genesis 9 is the story when Noah and the group come out of the ark after the flood. And Genesis 9 is the first time in Scripture that we read a prohibition against murder. And the reason that murder is prohibited in Genesis 9 is theological. The reason murder is prohibited is because God has made humanity in God's image. In other words, the acts of violence that we commit against one another, the ways that, that we war against one another, these aren't just acts of violence between people. These are acts of desecration against God. These are acts of blasphemy and dishonor against the divine life. And so when we, whether individually or collectively in churches or in society at large, when we keep women down, when we tell women to shut up, when we allow and even create the conditions that lead to things like assault and harm for women, all of that isn't just like bad for women and bad for us. It's blasphemy. It's an act of desecration against the divine life that is expressing itself in men and women. All right, we could go on and on. We got uh, the next thing to move on to. Um, what about men? I want to recognize, even as I move through this, I'm, I'm being a little sloppy here. Like by men, Jay, do you mean male by sex and anatomy, or do you mean masculine gender? What do you mean? 
I don't know. Uh, I know that's kind of a gnarly knot that's all tied up. But what about men as they are sort of generally thought of in the world and the way they show up today? Let's assume generally we're talking about the way that anatomy and hormones and social roles all get sort of piled together. And we have this thing called man here in the world today, right? Um, I know that many, if not most, of the spaces I operate in today, whether in person or digitally, many, if not most, of those spaces don't use the word masculinity unless it's preceded by an adjective, which is, anybody? Toxic. toxic. Yeah. I get that because there is a lot of toxic masculinity parading out there. That's the thing I said earlier about the version of male or man that's often been upheld is an immature, adolescent, and harmful version. That's true. I get that. And it has to be challenged, especially for all the harm that it does. But watch this. If the only category that we have for masculinity is toxic, well, then surely we are trying to solve problems at the same level of thinking that created them back when we had pejoratives for women, right? I mean, if it's true that male and female, that these are ways that God is expressing God's self in the world, then we're not going to get further by rejecting holy, sacred masculinity. We might need to figure out what that is. But we need it. And men, like however that term makes sense to you right now, like men are going to need to live in a world too where the best version of what it is to be a man is celebrated and called sacred and holy. We need the divine feminine and the divine masculine, and we need it to show up in the lives of men and women in our world. And we're not going to get there. If the only thing that we have to say to men is shut up or it, it's somehow inherently toxic to be masculine, that's not going to get us anywhere, Right? Uh, I had this observation a few years ago, and I've been chewing on it ever since. Anybody familiar with the podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Yeah, some are very familiar. Others, this is kind of inside baseball church stuff. Although that podcast, there were weeks where it was the number one downloaded podcast in the world. So it clearly captured a lot of our imagination. If you're not familiar, this is a podcast that chronicled the story of a very large and influential church and a very famous and powerful pastor named Mark Driscoll. The church was called Mars Hill over in Seattle. Um, this is a church that came up, I think, in the late 90s and was really cranking in the 2000s. And um, I listened for a number of reasons, some of which I'm really proud of and some I'm not so proud of. <laughs> I listened because I want to understand how it is that church could go wrong. And I want to understand the effect of such a prominent voice like Mark Driscoll, the name of the pastor. Like, his voice was loud and continues to be somewhat loud in the world. I want to understand what that voice does. If I'm being honest, there's also a part of me that I'm not proud of that listened for schadenfreude, which is a fancy German word for feeling good when other people suffer. Uh, <laughs> because in, in all the years of Driscoll's most prominent communication and work, I um, was not a fan. Uh, theologically, culturally, I just, um, it's easy to kind of think of him as the villain. And some of the things he's done, I think, are villainous. Um, but as I was listening to the podcast, they, they focused for part of the podcast episodes specifically around Mark's message to and appeal to men, especially young men. Like a lot of his sermons, he would speak at length to men specifically. And the things he would say to them were quite challenging. Now, as I was listening to this, it was kind of complicated because some of what he said, I think, was the epitome of toxic masculinity. He says things like, well, Jesus must have been a fighter because I can't worship a God who could be, I could beat up. Like that's just bizarre to me. I think that's that kind of strange toxic masculinity. But other stuff he said sounded so familiar to me. Let me explain. So he's there speaking to men, challenging men, um, saying difficult things to men, kind of getting in their face about stuff, right? And the crazy thing is a lot of the content of Driscoll's message is identical to the message that made another Christian thinker quite prominent, but nobody would associate these two men. So Driscoll's out there, he's you know, very, very conservative. He has a very, um, very hierarchical view of manhood and womanhood and the church and all these things. There's another theological thinker and a voice that, by the way, a lot of us at this church have loved and learned a lot from, a, a man who's now, I think, in his 80s. He's a Franciscan priest. His name is Richard Rohr. Did you know that in the 70s, Richard Rohr, a lot of his early prominence came from conducting male initiation rites. 
Rohr had looked at the world as it is right now, like in the West, among like Christians in America, and he, he looked at human history, and he observed that in almost every like, traditional or indigenous human culture, initiation rites have developed for young men to help them channel all that masculinity, to help them grow it up, to help them take the kind of raw um, strength and fire of that gender, of that identity, and to channel it into something redemptive and good for the world. And he observed that we don't have those in the West and America today. And so he specifically engineered, he designed these retreat experiences that were meant through not just preaching, but through experience to communicate five things to these men. Here's the list. Life is hard. You are not that important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. You are going to die. Now, that actually sounds a lot like Mark Driscoll preaching to young men. And we could spend all day long complaining about Driscoll, and there's a lot to complain about. Again, not a fan here, right? But one thing I realized Driscoll was doing that I've never done as a pastor is talk to men about how to be a man in the best sense. And again, like, when we don't address these things, they don't just go away. You know that, right? When we don't honor the sacred in one another, including masculinity that God seems to have put in men, when we don't honor that and call for the best version of it, it doesn't go away. We just get worse versions of it, right? So Driscoll has this message that's really hard for men to hear, but Roar, sweet, gentle father Roar, <laughs> was out there doing the very same thing and embedding it in retreat experiences for men because he knew that we needed this. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, well, what about, do women need these messages? Uh, this is Roar's theory. And I actually have talked about this with women in our church, and it has helped me to hear them resonate with it. Rohr's theory is that the one particular difference between men and women is that everything about the way a woman's body is designed to be able to bear children means they get this experience whether they like it or not. <laughs> I'm getting some amens from the women that always feels good. Really, even after the nine, a friend of mine and a woman in our church, she was really like... She had kind of a, a weight to it as she, she talked to me about it. She said, yeah, you know, whether women choose to have kids or not, whether they're biologically able to have kids or not, the normal experience of a woman is that when puberty comes, every month, your body does things whether you want it to or not that are not designed for you, but for the, the, the new life that might come through your body, right? And from, from puberty to menopause, that that's part of a woman's experience, whether they choose it or not, whether they end up having kids or not. Um, that your body is sort of taken through this experience over and over and over again that is designed not for the woman's life, but for the life that might come through the woman's body, right? Um, so that's my little disclaimer about why we're talking about men and the need to embrace these truths, and maybe women get there a different way. Um, but if it's true that we need woman, if we need female to get the divine life here, we also need male, the best version of it. And we're not going to get there if the only thing we have to say about men is that sometimes they can show up in toxic ways. We've got to do better than that. We've got to have more to say about that. Now, there's an interesting move in the New Testament in the book of Galatians that, that you're going to hear these sort of male-female bells ringing as you see this. This is Paul, again, our good buddy Paul. <laughs> And Paul in Galatians, he actually makes this move in more than one letter. This is the Galatians version of it. He's talking to the church. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, does that mean that since Jesus has come, we shouldn't be talking about male and female anymore? Does that mean we should just leave all that behind? Is that what he's saying? Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you read Paul's letters, it's, it's very clear that he still knows these categories exist. I mean, he talks for chapter after chapter after chapter about Jew and Gentile. So these, these categories are still operative for Paul. He doesn't seem to be saying that they disappear under Christ. Uh, male and female, like, he talks a lot about male and female in his letters in ways that I've just described that are sometimes problematic. But he doesn't seem to think that these identities have dissolved in Christ. What's going on here? Well, here's the alternative rendering, the one that I think is actually, like, deeply biblical and uh, corroborated by everything in the text. He's saying that these categories in Christ are no longer going to be used against one another. 
They're no longer going to be used to divide us against one another. They're no longer going to be used to create hierarchies of lesser and greater belonging or lesser or greater empowerment, which is exactly what you can see him doing with the Jew and Gentile thing. He's trying to figure out how can this community cohere with Jew and Gentile together in, in one unified experience together. How do these identities get married, right? So anyway, he seems to be saying that we've got to find a way to navigate these, these, gen, these identities, including gender, in a way that... Um, that brings about unity and healing. And it may not be happening in the world out there today, but it darn well better be happening in the church. At a minimum, this community that we are cultivating together with God and with one another, like in this space, it better be the case that those identities or any other that we might see being used to divide us into binaries and to create hierarchies, that something's got to happen in our midst that dismantles that effect, right? Now, after all of that, there's this one other question that's really important. What about people who don't fit these categories? I've been talking male and female, man and woman, divine feminine, divine masculine for a while now today. But what about people who, who don't fit these categories? There's a lot of vocabulary here. Uh, some use the language of gender dysphoria to describe um, a, a misalignment or a disconnect between their gender or their sex as assigned at birth and their inner experience of gender identity. Uh, some use the language of transgender to describe uh, basically that while their body showed up in the world in a way that we defined it perhaps as male, their inner experience is female or vice versa. There's others who find even transgender to be a, an unuseful word because you still have a binary. You're either cisgender or transgender, and that's not everybody's experience either. And some find that um, there's something else going on in their own experience of gender. What about people who don't fit these categories? Well, let's go back to Genesis for a minute and take another look at that Genesis 1 text. Because when you read God made them male and female, a lot of people use that text to say, see, God made the binary, God wants the binary. These are the two options. They come into the world as they are, and your job is to stick with them. Well, one observation on Genesis 1 that ends with that pairing of male and female is that there's a lot of pairings in that text, a lot of sort of things that are set side by side. Let me show you the list of these. Light and darkness in Genesis 1. Dry land and water. Day and night. Sea creatures and winged birds male and female. Those are all pairings in Genesis chapter 1. And I just want to note for you, like light and darkness isn't necessarily a binary, is it? It's a continuum, right? What about dry land and water? Have you ever been in a wetland or a marsh? I mean, seriously, I'm, I'm not trying to be cheeky here. I'm serious about this, right? These are not neat, cut and dry categories in the world that God has made, are they, right? Uh, day and night. What about twilight? I was talking to my friend Steve about this after the 9 a.m. gathering, and Steve was talking about how like sunset tends to be the most beautiful moment, or sun, sunrise for that matter. That liminal space that exists somewhere between day and night is not only, not only does it exist, but it's beautiful, right? Sea creatures and winged birds. We have animals that don't fit either of those categories. You know that, right? And then male and female. At a minimum, I think it's safe to say that the pairs in Genesis 1 don't clearly indicate that these are black and white binaries and that we have to stick to these categories. Now, I know that might sound, um, I don't know how that sounds to you. I don't know if it sounds very disruptive or if it seems quite sensible. Um, as I try to make the case that we don't have to live purely by these binaries, I could talk to you about the eunuchs in the late Isaiah, um, people who don't sort of fit the very clear sort of gender categories of male and female as they present in the world today, and the way that late Isaiah makes this profound move in the wake of the exile when they come back to the temple to include them. I could talk to you about um, brain scans uh, among people who experience gender dysphoria and how it appears to be the case that there is sometimes actual situations where the brain of a person who's in the body that we call female looks a lot more like the brain of a body, in a body that we would call male and vice versa. But I'm not a neuroscientist, and some of that's frankly like above my pay grade or beyond my expertise. What I can tell you that falls a little closer to my expertise in terms of understanding scripture and theology and what God's doing in us, what I can tell you is that, first of all, the world is very complicated and the brain loves binaries as a way of making sense of it. 
we take in so much information on a daily basis. And by information, I mean everything you taste, touch, smell, see, and hear. Right? I mean, you have sensory information, and then you read things, and you listen to things, and there's all this information coming at you in every relational encounter. There is so much information coming at us all the time. It's overwhelming. And so the brain does this very efficient thing which it sorts and it creates categories. And that can do a lot of good for us. It helps, if, we, if our brains didn't do that, it would be very hard to move through the world any given day, right? However, <laughs> binary black and white thinking, first of all, it doesn't actually correspond to reality very often, right? Just like think of the binaries that are operative in the world and ask yourself if the terrain of reality actually is best described by those binaries, right? I mean, even like in the political discourse of our day, like right and left, liberal, progressive, and conservative, like all that stuff, like we're sorting and shifting everything in terms of like the binaries. But not only is it not an accurate map of reality, it's not helping us right now, right? I mean, one of the ways the world is breaking is that we are just doubling down. We are insisting on sort of making sense of the entire world through black and white, through left and right, through binaries. If I had the time, I could take you through the entire Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters that we studied last year in Jesus' core teachings, and there's a very strong argument to be made that everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to lead you out of binary thinking into non-dual thinking. That's a, that's a pretty strong case to be made, that everything Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is to try to get us out of doing it. So I can make all these cases, whether from brain science or from the non-binary thing that I think is actually just part of growing up spiritually and becoming a mature human being, and we could do all of that but instead, I actually just want to lean on something that I said last week. Last week, we talked about what are we doing here as a church. And I went back to Acts chapter 15 and offered, again, the same frame that we landed on at the very beginning of South and City Church. And tried to say, again, that SBCC feels compelled that to be a church is to live in the interpretive tension between the world that we've inherited and the categories that we've inherited and the teachings that we've inherited on the one hand, and the changes that are happening in the world right now. Church finds its life and vitality with one another and with the Spirit of God through living in that tension. That's just Book of Acts, early church 101. It's right there. Right? So I made that case to you last week. But I said something else. I said that when the church updates its model, when the church decides, well, we didn't see it this way, but I think we can fold this in. Right? When they do that, it happens in a very specific way in Acts chapter 15. It's not that the people at the center of power, at the center of the organization, it's not that they received some new revelation from God and then distributed it among the masses. That's not what happened. What happens in the book of Acts chapter 15 is that it's sort of the inverse. God just shows up in the lives of the Gentiles, the outsiders, the, the ones that the insiders don't have a category for. That, that's exactly what's going on. For these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, when it turns out that the Spirit of God is showing up in the life of these uncircumcised Gentiles, which seems to indicate that God has included them in God's people, they don't have a category for that. They have nothing in their text that can help them make sense of the idea that God's people now includes people who haven't obeyed the law of Moses and who haven't been circumcised. They just don't have any way of making that sense of that. But they decided to update their model. In light of what God was doing among the outsiders, as, as they paid attention to it and decided to honor it. And that actually, for me, is the most compelling uh, theological reason that I know of. That, like, I think leaves me personally no choice but to show some honor and respect to the experience of people who would say, I don't fit that gender binary that you just described in one way or another. Maybe it's that my anatomy and my gender identity don't line up. Or maybe it's that I just don't find those male-female categories to make sense of my own experience of who I am. Um, the people I described, whether they name themselves as transgender or non-binary or gender expansive, the people I've described are subject to some of the most horrific and heartbreaking experiences of marginalization and danger in the world that we live in today. Uh, suicide rates uh, among the people I'm talking about are much, much, much higher than the general population. They experience harassment at a much greater rate. They experience violence at a much greater rate. Something like 19% of self-described transgender people report having been homeless specifically on account of their gender identity. Now, some have used those statistics in a kind of leveraged way to argue against uh, non-binary or transgender uh, claims, basically to say that, well, all of that's a sign that you shouldn't be doing that or claiming that, right? 
However, uh, and again, this is me trusting experts that I've been reading um, who are just looking at the data and trying to understand it. Uh, the phrase comes out uh, from the literature that there's a lot of evidence that those negative outcomes I just described are a result of what's called minority stress. And minority stress is quite simply what one experiences when they live in a world that marginalizes them. The way that that, that world and its structures and its cultures and its relationships put extra stress on those people. Um, those, those negative effects that I've just described seem to be a result of a world that we have built that doesn't have a category, it doesn't have room for the people that I'm talking about. Um, uh, another way that I was reminded of the kind of experience that transgender and gender nonconforming people have happened last summer during my sabbatical that I'm really thankful for. Part of my sabbatical I spent in LA and I was there to connect with family and friends and I was also there to do some learning. And the learning I was doing was I was going to comedy clubs every night. <laughs> Not because I was trying to get funnier, which you all can attest didn't happen anyway. But, <clears throat> but really, I, I'm, I'm passionate about communication as an art form, as a craft, and I wanted to take notes from some really great communicators. So I went night after night after night. A lot of these lineups would have 7, 10, 12 comics in one night, and you just kind of swim in everything that they were doing. And there was so much about it that I loved that I found innovative and creative. I'm also, like, I think comedy ought to be a little bit transgressive. I, thought, I think it ought to be irreverent. I think comedy ought to be a place where a healthy society can handle things getting poked at. I think that's a sign of a healthy society. So in general, I'm on board with all that. I even find it you know, sort of uh, inspiring. I mean, frankly, the, the biblical prophets probably had more in common with comics today than they do with preachers today. So I'm intrigued by all of that. However... There was one just bizarre trend that stood out in a really painful and heartbreaking way. It's just bizarre to me. So you go to a comedy club, and you might see 7, 10, 12 comics in a night. And you know, these comics, they want to be original, right? They want their bits to be different from anybody else's bits. They want to have different angles talking about different things. The one thing all of these comics did, and I mean, there would be nights where I'd see 10 comics, and all of them, all 10 of them, the one thing in common in all of their sets is that they would punch down at transgender people. And at first I noticed it, and then it became to, like, be, really disturbed me. And, like, it's almost exclusively cisgender white men up there just punching down at an incredibly vulnerable group of people who suffer in the world in really enormous ways. And one of those comics who I didn't see in L.A., but I, I pay attention to, and I think he's an incredible communicator, and he's problematic in some ways, is a guy named Dave Chappelle. And Chappelle has been kind of notorious on this front. He's had a lot of harmful and hurtful things to say about transgender people in particular. But it was actually a moment in a Chappelle set that really moved my heart even further in the direction that I'm describing right now. Uh, Chappelle's uh, doing a set, and in the set, Chappelle describes an earlier show that he had done, where during the show he gets heckled by a transgender woman who's a part of his audience. And they're sort of going back and forth and kind of arguing with each other, as happens in a comedy club with a heckler. And after a while, this transgender woman, and this is Dave Chappelle telling this story through his own set, this transgender woman says to him, I'm not asking you to understand me. Which, that makes some sense to me. I don't know that as a cisgender person, I don't know that I will ever like fully understand the experience of gender dysphoria or, or transgender identity or uh, non-conforming kind of identities. I don't know that I will fully understand that. But this trans woman says to, to Dave, I'm not asking you to understand me. I'm asking you to believe me. And that took me back to the book of Acts and those Gentiles saying to these Jewish Christians, I don't know if you have a category for me, but God is at work in this story in my life. God is showing up in this in my life. And that's often what I've heard from the story of um, people who don't fit these gender categories that I'm talking about, is they find the room to own that and to begin to live into that and tell that story. I don't know that I'll understand them, but I think I should believe them. And I think you should too. Um, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, wh whether it's about this particular thing or other sort of evolving notions of faith and theology. And sometimes what I'll hear from somebody is, well, yeah, I mean, I love them. You know, I, I care about them. And I, and I believe you. Yeah, like there's compassion there, right? But like, I don't know that I should let these people affect my theology. I get that. I understand that move. By the way, that would have been me shouting that very principle from the rooftops until not too many years ago. 
Like theology, you know, we get it from Scripture, and it, it shouldn't ever change, right? And then we love well, but we don't change our theology in light of people's experience. But lately, when I, when I hear somebody say, like, well, I don't know that these people should affect my theology, the thing I want to say loud back is, like, yeah, but you know what? Your theology is affecting those people. Theology has consequences. It's high stakes whether you like it or not. And I wish it were easier and lower stakes sometimes. Being human is high stakes, whether we like it or not. And um, those of us who want to protect our theology from the experience of other people, I hope to God that we protect those people from the effect of our theology because sometimes the effects of those theologies are um, deadly. Um, Side note, uh, as I talk about... um, the experience of uh, transgender and non-binary people, it's really important, I think, that we actually get to hear from one of them. Uh, this past week, I recorded a, like a bonus podcast episode for the South Bend uh, City Church podcast feed. Please check it out this week. It'll be on Tuesday uh, with a woman named Mish Van Essen. Uh, Mish is a transgender woman who has been here at South Bend City Church before. She doesn't live in the area. Uh, we met Mish. Uh, she's a part of a church leadership team from Washington, D.C. area. And her church and our church were all out in Denver for a gathering back in October. And Mish just offered the most kind, generous conversation with me as I got to ask her questions about her story and her self-understanding. And so I highly encourage you to listen to that because it shouldn't just be me talking about this experience that I haven't had, right? Uh, So please check that out on the podcast. Now, in light of everything I've said, um, I know that we are having a lot of fights and a a lot of disagreements in the world right now around matters of public policy and how to raise kids in light of everything I've just described. I don't have all the answers, of course. I don't know at what age it's appropriate for a child who says they're experiencing gender dysphoria to receive a medical intervention to confirm that sense of gender. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I know that a lot of, again, public policy fights are being had on, on that matter. I know a lot of parents feel really lost in these waters right now. What I'm certain of, though, is we're not gonna figure this out as long as we are channeling fear and playing power games around these issues. Any chance that we have, collectively, as a society or community, any chance that we have of charting a course through these questions that is holy and beautiful and good, one that leads to the flourishing of people, any chance that we have to get there is diminished by all the fear and all the anger and all the power games that are being played around these questions. And you know, I don't know that we're going to fix all of that out there in the world at large today either, although we should do whatever we can. But I also think right here in this community, as a church family, one of the chances that we have is to walk with each other gently and tenderly and to wrestle and reason with one another as we work this out. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again. One of the ways to gain political power is to convince your group that the other group is dangerous to you and then to say, but I will protect you. I will fight for you against them. It's just human nature 101, sociology 101. We are seeing that in spades right now. And a lot of that game is being played on the backs of transgender and nonconforming people to their detriment and our detriment because none of us is better off if we don't have everyone building the world together, right? Uh, Speaking of building the world, back at Genesis 1, and this is the last thing I'll say before we wrap up this brief little sermon. (laughs) Remember in Genesis 1, it's not just that God wanted God's image to be born for general purposes. There's there's a reason for it. Uh, And this goes back to like one of the resonances in the text that if you study ancient context, you'll hear this. In the ancient world, at the same time that Genesis 1 is being written, one of the things that happened frequently is that an emperor would have images of himself cast in statue form. And then those images would be sent out to all of the regions of the empire, so the entire empire would be reminded of the rule of the emperor. That's one of the sort of things being evoked by Genesis 1, which seems to explain why when God wants men and women to bear God's image, God says, it's so that you can tend to the world. Do you remember that language there? I want you to tend to the, all the world around you, to get your hands on it and lead it toward greater and greater flourishing. And so like, the reason to preach about gender, we don't, we don't need a TED talk about gender. Right? I mean, we probably do, but like, that's not what church is for on a Sunday morning. I'm interested in talking to you about God. 
and what God wants to do through us in the world, what it means to channel the divine life through our lives. And I, I think gender is actually a part of that. It might be that you're a man, and maybe that identity makes sense of your anatomy and your inner world and your hormones, and that, um, and that means you show up in a certain way in the world. Good. We welcome that, not just because it's you, but because it's divine. It might be that you're a, a woman, and maybe that makes sense of your anatomy and your inner experience and your hormones and your mind and everything else. Good, we need you. We, we need all of you. We need the best version of you. We need your voice, your power, your strength, your wisdom, your insight, because if we don't, we're going to get less of God, and we need God. And maybe you don't fit anything I've just said. Maybe your body or your inner experience of life or gender doesn't fit these, these categories in the way that I've just described them. But we need you. And we need you, I think, not in spite of what I just said about you, but because of it. Because that is the terrain of the divine that God describes when God says, I want to make human beings to bear my image in the world. And so I hope, like, in your own life, when, however you think of yourself in terms of gender, I hope that you are seeing that as a channel of God's life in the world. We need it. And however you encounter that in others, I hope we can become the kind of people who love well and who honor that in each other and, and like build a whole world with systems and structures and spaces that are ready to honor all of that. All right, that's all I got. Good? Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Almost right on time. I promised Karen we wouldn't go long. God knows those kids volunteers, they, they put in their effort, don't they? Um, next week we begin Lent. We'll come back to the Apostles' Creed and work through what it tells us about the story of Jesus at the cross. Uh, I'm really eager for everything that we have planned during the Lenten season. Don't miss Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday. Uh, that'll be a really sacred moment to receive ashes uh, on your forehead and to be reminded of your humanity, which is a gift. That being said, may you know and delight in the fact that God has made you to bear God's image. God decided that God wanted you to get your hands on this world, to love it, to tend to it, to fashion it and shape it in a way that looks more and more like the world that God wants. Whether you connect with a sense of male or female, man or woman, or whether you have another category for your experience of gender, May you consider that not just incidental to your life, not just a random accessory that travels with you whether you like it or not. May you embrace it. May you own it. May you seek the holiest, best, most sacred expression of that energy so that we get more of God here in the world. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.